Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gantt College of Pharmacy. I'm recording this uh, somewhat late in the afternoon on Thursday, September 24th. A lot to get through in the last week with ESMO 2020. Uh, as well as uh, the New England Journal of Medicine publishing um, some of the papers presented at ASCO 2020. So a lot to get through. Let's get right into it, starting with some bladder cancer updates. So uh, Javelin Bladder 100, which was presented uh, at ASCO, the, the full results were published now in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is maintenance of Elumab. Um, in metastatic urothelial carcinoma, so the way this worked, they got the standard platinum gemcitabine, either cis or carboplatin plus gemcitabine, for four to six cycles. Uh, and then if they did not have progression, so complete partial response, complete or partial response, or stable disease, they then were randomized to maintenance of Alumab or placebo. Now this showed a median overall survival of 21 months versus 14 months with a nice hazard ratio. Um, in the PDL1 positive subgroup, the median overall survival was not reached versus 17.1 months. So the hazard ratio for overall survival in the entire population was 0.69. Quite a bit better hazard ratio in the pdl one positive population, which is 0.56, which appears to have largely driven that benefit. If you look at the pdl one negative population, the median OS uh, was 18.8 versus 13.7. That hazard ratio is 0.85 and does cross one. So it appears, uh, again, the median overall survival benefit with maintenance value may be limited to PD-L1 positive. Um, both the overall uh, population and PD-L1 positive population, those Kaplan-Meier curves overlap for four months and then separate very nicely, uh, a little bit more so in the PD-L1 positive group. In the PD-L1 negative group, the overall survival curves um, are perfectly overlapped for eight months, which sort of suggests maybe uh, any benefit you see uh, was because of subsequent therapy. Now, you know, there's not a whole lot of reason to look at the overall response rate, I think, in this study, which was newly published, uh, I believe. And, you know, they already had the responses they're going to have demplatinum-based chemo. So a lot of this we knew from ASCA. What's new here uh, is what was the second line? So the folks um, in the placebo plus best supportive care arms, 62% uh, got subsequent therapy. Um, it wasn't 100%, so I guess maybe 40% were just too sick to go on to anything else, or they deteriorated too quickly, which is possible. Um, of the entire patients in the best support care, 44% got immunotherapy, a PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitor, which means of everyone who got subsequent therapy in the placebo arm, 70% got an IO, uh, immunotherapy, um, and then about 34% got something else, it says any other drug quote, and about 3% got an FGFR inhibitor. Um, so, you know, 70% of everyone who got second-line treatment got a checkpoint inhibitor, so quite a bit, although, you know, you would expect the number of people who got second-line therapy to be higher than 62%. Um, at least here in the States, you would expect that. Uh, what, what I did not realize and what maybe was not known at the presentation is only 5% of patients in this trial uh, were North American. So if you practice in the United States, Canada, for example, um, you know, this patient population is, is perhaps not generalizable to North America. Um, now, one thing that is still unanswered here is how many people in this study got just four cycles of chemo, especially in the best supportive care arm. You know, six is the standard based on randomized controlled trials. Uh, the manuscript cites a retrospective study suggesting four cycles is as good as six, but what do we say to do with retrospective studies? Eh, we don't know. Seems hard to base that. So uh, there's still a possibility that the best supportive care arm was undertreated uh, 
as those, some of those patients only got four cycles, which, which may be the standard of care outside of North America, which comprised 95% of patients in this study. Still, this is supplanted, uh, you know, a, a niche in our favorite guidelines as, as a recommended therapy if, if people do well on their platinum-based chemo to do um, maintenance of Valumab. Uh, still um, unanswered would be um, to, to give patients uh, directly um, uh, or to give uh, immunotherapy uh, immediately upon uh, disease progression. One other study in this same realm that was published, uh, or not published, but presented at ASCO is Danube. And you know right away, if you know your, you know your geography and rivers, is that if the study is named after a large body of water, uh, it's a Dervalumab study. So this was metastatic urothelial cancer, 3% of them locally advanced, so mostly all metastatic. And they randomized one-to-one-to-one to, one to, one to Dervalumab, uh, Dervalumab plus trimalimumab, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor in the vein of ipilimumab, or chemo, platinum-based chemo. There was no improvement in overall survival in the whole population or in the PDL1 population. Uh, now, what we see here is a familiar trend, and that is the Kaplan-Meier curves uh, initially favor chemotherapy, and then they cross over about nine months later and favor immunotherapy. We've seen the same story in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer pa um, patients. If you compare just chemo alone to immunotherapy alone, we now see this with chemo versus just immunotherapy. We saw this in metastatic colorectal cancer patients, uh, MSI high or mismatched repair uh, with chemo versus IO. Is that chemo works better initially because some people progress right away and, and, and die pretty quickly on immunotherapy, but immunotherapy has perhaps longer lasting benefits in some folks. Um, so it seems to be what we're looking at is perhaps the thing to study is chemo plus immunotherapy uh, versus chemo followed immediately by immunotherapy when people can no longer tolerate chemo, say after six cycles. Uh, so an example would be in, uh, in bladder cancer, chemo plus evalumab up front versus chemo followed by evalumab immediately upon maintenance or whatever your immunotherapy was. Uh, now in theory, Immunotherapy should work best when the disease burden is lowest, so like after response to first-line chemo, the way the Javelin Bladder 100 study was designed. In theory, that's when the immune system is probably going to be most effective uh, because the disease burden should be lower. An immune system uh, is great. I uh, love the immune system. It's great, uh, but um, probably uh, can be overwhelmed with massive disease burden, which, which is, is why... Uh, I think um, that's what we're going to see going forward more of is, is perhaps limited chemo plus immunotherapy followed by immunotherapy maintenance. Those would be the things I would think uh, would be useful to continue to study. Uh, one other study of note from ESMO uh, in this same arena, uh, in the genital urinary arena, would be Checkmate 9ER, which was advanced renal cell carcinoma. Uh, similar story to what we've seen, such as um, pembrolizumab plus exitinib or evalumab plus exitinib. This is cabozantinib plus nivolumab was shown to be superior to sunitinib in both progression-free survival and overall survival in renal cell carcinoma. So again, we've, we've seen this before, a checkpoint inhibitor plus a VEGF TKI better than uh, an old-school TKI in sunitinib. All right, let's talk about lung cancer now. Uh, this is another flashback from ASCO 2020, ad aura. So adjuvant aura, adjuvant OC mertinib. Um, Three years of OCMRTIB in the adjuvant setting compared to placebo for non-small cell lung cancer patients, either stage 1B, stage 2, or stage 3. So we know from, uh, from ASCO there's a big DFS benefit or disease-free survival benefit, and overall survival was extremely immature. So we knew that. Uh, this is what we learned. 40% of patients in this study did not receive adjuvant chemo, which would have been standard of care for most of these patients. Now, 
the JBR10 data, which is a landmark pivotal trial in the adjuvant setting. Hey, that'd be a good idea for a future podcast. Uh, basically showed that there was overall survival benefit for cis oral being in this patient population, but the benefit was limited really to those with stage 2 or stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, it showed about a 15% improvement in overall survival. And that's an absolute risk improvement overall survival in JBR10 versus observation after surgery. Anita also cisvenoral being showed about a 9% improvement in five-year overall survival. So the, the gains of adjuvant chemo are not minimal in this patient population. So 40% did not receive adjuvant chemo. Uh, that includes uh, 30% of patients with stage 2 disease that did not get adjuvant chemo and 20% of patients with stage 3 disease. Um, so it seems to me that, <clears throat> pardon me, that really the, the best thing um, to look at once we get the overall survival data uh, would be to look at was there any benefit specifically in those who got adjuvant chemo with regards to cure, and for those that say we're not healthy enough to get adjuvant chemo, basically we're starting to, to if you're not going to get adjuvant chemo, very high risk of recurrence. We're doing, we're doing preemptive metastatic treatment. Uh, so the overall survival results are still to come for ADIRA. And then there's Crown, which is a big one. At, people talked a lot about Crown on, on Twitter uh, from ESMO. This is metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, ALK, um, mutated, uh, showing that lorlatinib was better than crizotinib. We already knew that electinib was better than crizotinib, so this doesn't tell us a whole lot other than maybe there's another option uh, besides electinib uh, up front. Uh, let's talk now about breast cancer, all right? So... We, we heard this, there was, you know, the, the press release came out a few weeks ago about atezolizumab plus paclitaxel. So let's talk about Impassion 130 and Impassion 131. So Impassion 130, this is a little bit of old data and then some updates on the old data. So this is atezolizumab um, plus NAB-paclitaxel versus NAB-paclitaxel alone in triple negative breast cancer that's untreated. This was published by Schmid in New England Journal of Medicine in 2018 showed a PFS benefit in the PD-L1 positive population, which in this, you know, PD-L1 positivity is different based on every drug and sometimes based on the drug and disease state combination. So PD-L1 positivity here is more than 1% of the immune cells staying positive in the tumor sample. And the overall survival trended in the right direction uh, for Impassion 130. So what, is, what do we learn at ESMO 2020? Three-year overall survival in all patients, 28% versus 25%. Uh, call that the same, all right? Three-year overall survival in PD-L1 positive patients, 36% with the Tizo plus NAB paclitaxel versus 22% uh, with paclitaxel. It's a pretty big, uh, you know, improvement there. That's a, a hazard ratio of 0.67 with a confidence interval of 0.53 to 0.86. It does not cross one. Sounds statistically significant. However, this was not formally tested um, in their uh, in their hierarchical statistical analysis. And that's because they use some of their alpha on PFS, like, like one of their 5% alpha was on PFS, and then four of their 5% was on overall survival, but they used it first looking at the overall population, and since that overall population didn't show a statistically significant overall survival benefit, they couldn't use any more alpha for PDL1 positive, which appears to be the only place uh, where you would see benefit from atizolumab plus nabpaclitaxel. So if uh, you seem confused, it makes sense. Uh, I will uh, say that look at the New England Journal of Medicine 2018 publication of Impassion 130 at the supplement, and they have a little figure there that, that looks like an algorithm of how they did their alpha spending, and it's more confusing than our favorite guidelines website for how to treat Hodgkin's lymphoma on the algorithm slide. Okay, Now, so this looks good of a TISO plus 
nabpaclitaxel in PDL1 positive, triple negative breast cancer. Um, but you know, we're, of course, we don't usually use a Braxane single agent for triple negative breast cancer, especially dosing at 100 milligrams weekly for three weeks of a four-week cycle seems on the lower end compared to say 125 or even 150 if you're really aggressive. So the question obviously is what would happen if you added atezolizumab to paclitaxel, which is the drug that we love, you know, great drug for our breast cancer patients. Well, that is in passion 131 which randomized uh, over 600 patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer that was untreated, uh, two to one to either tizolizumab plus paclitaxel or paclitaxel alone. Right, paclitaxel. Um, they did a little bit of an odd dosing regimen, 90 milligrams per meter squared weekly for three weeks of a four-week cycle versus the 80 milligrams per meter squared weekly. Um, in both the entire patient population and the pdl one positive population, which is about half of the patients, there's no benefit from atizolizumab with PFS OS. In fact, if I'm going to say there was a trend towards overall survival advantage for atizo plus nabpaclitaxel, then I need to say there's a trend towards worse survival with the tizolizumab. So maybe atizolizumab was detrimental uh, when combined with paclitaxel. So everyone's taken a, two giant steps back from using atizolizumab in triple negative breast cancer. Um, so you know, what does this mean in this patient population? Well, there's obviously more research that's needed, and we have, uh, we can look back at Keno 355, which was Pembro, uh, plus chemo, chemo being NAB, paclitaxel, paclitaxel, or carbogem, uh, versus chemo alone. That showed better PFS in a, in a PDL1 high positive um, patient population, metastatic breast cancer. And then Keno 522, which was published in February in the New England Journal of Medicine, was uh, Pembro. Uh, plus uh, carbopaclitaxel in the adjuvant se- in the neoadjuvant setting compared to just chemo alone, and then they got AC or epirubicin cyclophosphamide, like in their UK. Then surgery, then Pembro or placebo. Uh, the Pembro showed a better uh, pathologic complete response rate, and we're waiting for the event-free survival. So did this Pembro in the neoadjuvant, and and then I think it was 12 weeks of maintenance. It wasn't really maintenance. So it was you know neoadjuvant Pembro plus chemo, and then adjuvant Pembro. Uh, showed better pathologic complete response rate. We'll know, you know, soon when this was published, it's about one-third mature uh, with regards to event-free survival. So we should know hopefully in the next year if Pembro early on in triple negative breast cancer, uh, you know, prevented disease recurrence or death in in triple negative breast cancer um, patients. All right, two more breast cancer studies to talk about. Ascent. This was the pivotal trial of sacituzumab govitecan. That's the trope 2 uh, monoclonal antibody that is linked to SN38, the active metabolite of irinotecan. Uh, now, so this is new data uh, with progression-free survival data. Um, so uh, sacituzumab govitecan was approved based on an overall response rate of 33.3% um, in about 100 patients who had a median number of three prior treatments. So this is a larger study of 500 or so patients um, 468 were brain met negative, and the primary endpoint was progression-free survival in the brain metastasis negative cohort, um, which is basically telling you don't use this drug if they have brain mets. Um, so they had negative brain mets in the evaluation cohort, uh, at least two or more prior lines of treatment in the metastatic setting, um, and almost all had had a prior taxane or anthracycline, uh, and it showed a progression-free survival benefit. Uh, compared to single-agent chemo with either capecitabine, gemcitabine, venorobine, or aribulin. Uh, so, so we do have now some something more than just response rate for cyclotizumab govitecan in 
this triple negative breast cancer patient population. And then the last breast cancer study, uh, no, 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 second to last breast cancer study to talk about is Monarchy, Menarche, uh, how you say Monarchy, I think that's what they want to say is Monarchy. This is a bemacyclib plus endocrine therapy versus just endocrine therapy alone in high-risk adjuvant treatment breast cancer. So how do they define high-risk? Okay, they look at it a couple different ways. So one is just based on staging. So four-plus positive lymph nodes or one to three lymph nodes with a big tumor, five centimeters or more. Or node positivity plus some other high-risk features, right? So node positive, any node, one node or more. Uh, if their KI-67 was above 20%, which is pretty high for a breast cancer, uh, node positive if it was grade three uh, on pathology, okay? Now, 43% of these folks were premenopausal, so a younger patient population uh, than all early breast cancer patients. 95% had prior chemo, either neoadjuvant or adjuvant. 44% had a KI-67 to 20%, uh, and 70% were stage three. So these are very, very high-risk patients for disease recurrence, and they got abemacyclib standard dose for two years, plus the endocrine therapy of whatever the physician wanted, whether it was uh, AI, AI plus ovarian suppression, tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression, that's what they got. Primary endpoint was invasive disease-free survival. And at two years, there was uh, better invasive degrees disease-free survival with bemacyclib, 92.2% uh, versus 88.7%. That's an absolute risk reduction of 3.5%, which means you'd have to treat 29 patients with a bemacyclib for two years to prevent one invasive disease-free survival event two years later. Does this matter, invasive disease-free survival? We'll have to wait uh, for overall survival analyses. Maybe uh, more so in, in younger women uh, who are trying to prevent that distant recurrence. Um, and, you know, you know, even invasive disease-free survival may not be distant. It, it could be also a local recurrence that could easily uh, be treated. Um, a couple things here to, that I think are interesting. Um, the abemacyclib group plus endocrine therapy had lower traditional endocrine toxicity events than endocrine therapy alone. And I'll tell you what I mean here. So arthrologists were seen in 20% of patients on the abemacyclib arm plus endocrine therapy versus 31% with just endocrine therapy. Hot flashes, 14% abemacyclib plus endocrine therapy versus 21% with just endocrine therapy. So it was like a 50% relative uh, reduction in both. So um, you know, somebody hypothesized in a very nice editorial accompanying this article, which was published in JCO as well, as well as being presented at, at ESMO, that perhaps um, patients are so caught up in reporting their diarrhea that they don't notice uh, the arthralgias and hot flashes. Uh, or maybe there's some sort of weird drug interaction that, that prevents some activity uh, with abemacyclib on endocrine therapy. I, and I don't see any bioplausible reason that that would be, um, but just something that's similar. I went back and looked actually at all the, the advanced and metastatic data with abemacyclib and palbo and ribocyclib, and they, they don't report arthralgias and hot flashes in those studies. So this is something that's kind of new that I'm going to keep my eye on. Uh, and then also we got to think about um, there's similar data with palbocyclib called the PALA study. They didn't show any benefit as far as invasive disease-free survival, although, and that was like a press release that was reported, although their um, inclusion criteria uh, didn't include as many high-risk patients probably. They, they allowed it in some more medium-risk patients. So maybe abemacyclib or CDK4-6 inhibitors really would only prevent invasive disease-free survival in a highly, highly selected group of breast cancer patients who are high risk. And of course, there'll be a ribocyclob study. That's called Natalie that'll be coming out. Um, okay, 
Last breast cancer I wanted to talk about is Solar One, which was a Pelisib plus fulvestrant versus fulvestrant alone in PI3K alpha mutated metastatic breast cancer. This was published in 19, 2019 in New England Journal of Medicine. Showed an improvement in PFS. This is the uh, overall survival analysis. Um, overall survival, um, median overall survival was 39.3 months versus 31.4 months in this PI3K alpha mutated metastatic breast cancer population. So, yeah. An eight-month improvement in median overall survival looks good. P-value is 0.15. Uh, hazard ratio 0.75 with a compensation rate of 0.52 all the way across 1 to 1.8. Now, it was a secondary endpoint, so it wasn't powered to detect a difference in overall survival. But, you know, next time they should do that. That's what we care about is overall survival. All right. And then uh, the last study I want to talk about um, is... Uh, it's just fun, right? This is uh, Satorisib, and this is AMG 510 is what you may know it. It made a lot of news because it was the first drug um, that's, that's been tested and shown to be effective at uh, treating a KRAS mutated disease, specifically the KRAS G12C mutation. And this is a phase one study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And most of these patients had non-small cell lung cancer, a few colon, a few elsewhere, a few other stuff. All right, so KRAS has uh, always been considered undruggable, and of course we have RAS all over every cell in our body probably. Um, so this specific uh, KRAS G12C mutation has, you know, it's got an off switch and an on switch, and in the off switch there's a place that satorisib can bind uh, to the off switch. So it's got a unique mechanism of action, and by binding to uh, K this mutated KRAS in the off switch, it prevents it from being uh, turned on. Uh, so it, it's it's a neat little mechanism of action. Uh, it doesn't appear to inhibit wild-type RAS, which I would expect would be wildly, wildly toxic and intolerable. Uh, so when you look at the, the toxicity profile, again, phase one study, not a lot of folks. Um, you know, there was less than 5% grade 3 diarrhea, less than 5% grade 3 transaminitis, and that was the most common severe toxicities. Um, and this has modest activity, all right? So the overall response rate in uh, non-small cell lung cancer was 32% at 6 out of 19 patients, so small numbers, uh, all partial responses. Um, so 30% response rate, that sounds good. That's the same as uh, cicutuzumab govotecan in triple negative breast cancer, uh, except this is a, a very selected patient population. Um, for example, the overall response rates for uh, erlotinib, Fitinib, Ocimertinib are above 50%, up to 50, 60, 65% for metastatic EGFR, non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, ALK rearranged and, and mutated non-small cell lung cancer have response rates above 70% for electinib and even crizotinib. So 13, or yeah, 13%, not all that impressive. Sorry, 33%, not all that impressive. 13% of non-small cell lung cancer patients have this KRAS mutation. Uh, that's what I wanted to say. So it, it would appear to be more prevalent than, say, the 1% to 2% uh, EGFR mutants that you would encounter or ALK mutants. So 13 is a higher number. Um, but not all of those folks with a 13%, uh, not all of those 13% of patients with all non-small cell lung cancer, their KRAS mutated, the specific uh, G12C mutation, doesn't seem to be a driver mutation in all those folks. Uh, or the drug's just not that good uh, at preventing it. Uh, we will have to wait to find out. Uh, and then, by the way, uh, the response rate with colon cancer was less than 10%, 7%. So a response rate less than 10% pretty much means you're not going to see that drug studied, at least as monotherapy uh, going forward.
So that's ESMO 2020 uh, and beyond. Uh, thanks for listening. I uh, appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.